Let me ask that you bow with me as we come now to the scripture. Our Father in heaven, um, I thank you for Sundays. The opportunity to stop, to breathe, to come with a company of your people, like-minded concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, to come into worship. I thank you for that. I pray that I, that we uh, never uh, take this for granted. So I pray that on this day you would bless it in such a way that we come away knowing you better, uh, enriched by our coming and by this time of worship. We pray that you have been pleased thus far. Now I ask that you would help us even more. You are our hope. Uh, we hope only in your steadfast love to the degree that we hope in anything else. Forgive us. We know that in hoping in anything else we're diminished and you're dishonored. So we pray, God, that now we would come to your scripture, your word, and, and listen and hear. And I pray that you would work this in us that we might glorify you and walk in such a way that we're too blessed because we belong to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 17. John chapter 17. I want to read again verses 20 through 26. John chapter 17, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. It says, Jesus, remember, Jesus is praying right before the crucifixion. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I was actually thinking that this would be the last time we would be in John 17, and so I sat down and began to work and realized that this what I thought would be the last sermon might be another two or three, but um, I was reminded when I was working through that of a preface to an economics textbook that I used years ago in teaching. And it was a short book, only about 125 pages, uh, but the author warned in his preface this, short writing leads to long reading. And sometimes it does, because sometimes that which is short is so packed that it takes us a long time to get what's there. And I would say in this case, Jesus' relatively short prayer uh, takes for long consideration, long meditation. And uh, so we've been here a while. And, and I know for me, quite frankly, I leave each Sunday with a certain sense of what Jesus is praying and, and helped by it. But I, I feel like I'm just grabbing sometimes at air because there's so much here and it's so hard to ferret it all out that I could spend maybe the rest of my life here um, 
but I won't, uh, unless uh, there's something unforeseen um, in the next few weeks, uh, which may be true too, but I don't know. Uh, but I think one of the things that really makes this passage so dense, if you will, so significant and so tight is that it, it, it encompasses so much of the life of Jesus. I mean, we see it from the, really, his, his life and purpose from before the foundations of the world. Um, we, we know that in verse 2, Jesus is talking about giving eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, and we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that they were in Christ, these very ones, the ones he had been given before the foundation of the world. And so we, we goes back all the way, you see, into the very mind and heart of God as, as, as our salvation, if you will, is being planned. And the incarnation as Jesus comes, and now he's praying that, that uh, he would be glorified so that his Father would be glorified, that as he would be known so that his Father could be known. And then he walks through and explains how it is, or prays about how it is that he's making his Father known. He revealed his Father's name to those whom the Father had given him. They believed uh, they believed. And then Jesus prays for them that those who have believed and those who will believe will be kept in his Father's name. That those who have believed and those who will believe uh, will receive his joy. That those who have believed and will believe will be sanctified in the truth. That those who have believed and will believe will be kept from evil. That those who have believed will be made one with those who will believe. And so we see this company, this whole company of people, Jesus uh, giving himself, that they may have eternal life. And it even brings it all the way to the end. This verse 24, where I want to just begin this week, is this, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they, that is all of those who have eternal life, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there is this sense of, of, of then being with Jesus forever. So from the very beginning of all of this to the very end, if you will, of all of this, being with him where he is for the sole purpose that he would reveal himself even more, that we would see perfectly, entirely his glory. Now, really, that, that, that has one stop between here and there. I was thinking this last night when I was on a nonstop plane and thankful for it coming from somewhere, Orlando. Uh, to hear, but uh, I was thinking there's, there's a stop before we get there, and the stop is what we normally call heaven. It's not purgatory, so don't go there, all right? This is purgatory, trust me. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think purgatory is in Iowa, isn't there? Anyway, um, but, um, but what we call heaven, that isn't the final state, that's what theologians call the intermediate state. That is to say, that when we die, believers, we enter into the very presence of the Lord. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, that we're out of the body, we're in the presence of the Lord. But the problem is we're out of the body, that the resurrected body hasn't happened yet. That seems not to happen until Jesus returns. And so when we read through the book of Revelation, for instance, and we see, uh, and we read of the Apostle John seeing these saints in glory, they're, in a sense, disembodied spirits, recognizable, it appears, as those that Jesus has saved, but still not embodied in the same way that we understand our bodies today. I don't know what that looks like, uh, but, but, but Jesus, when Jesus returns, then there is that resurrection time, the time we receive those bodies, as he describes the Apostle does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of these incorruptible, imperishable bodies that we will receive there. 
And so, so on the one hand, we, upon our death, leave and enter into the presence of the Lord. But, and we see, you know, that's glorious. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, that's good. But there's something yet even still after that to come. That's why as we read through the book of Revelation, the saints even in heaven are saying, how long is it going to be? How long is it going to be? How long is it going to be? There's a longing for something. And the longing for wholeness, for completeness, for consummation. And that will indeed come at the coming of our Lord Jesus when the judgment comes. And, and we who are in him are given uh, eternal life. The manifestation of eternal life. And we'll be in his presence and everything will reflect his glory. That's next Sunday. Uh, today. <laughs> so I couldn't do all of this. That's going to take a while. But today, what I want to do is just do something I don't normally really do, even though I'm a bit picky uh, or detailed, let's say. That's better. Um, um, I want to just think about this word that I have in the ESV anyway. Desire in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire. Now, if you have a New American Standard, it's desire. If you have a New International Version, it's want. Father, I want. If you have a King James Version, it's Father, I will that. And, and there's this particular word that can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be used in the sense of someone's will. That is, a deliberate, planned out, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it, and it's going to get done. But it can also be used to express a desire. Now, those two things are, are often related, sometimes not. I mean, sometimes we, we, we will to do something, we plan to do something, but we'd rather not. I didn't particularly want to have surgery this summer. You know, I mean, I had to, and all of that, so I wanted it in that sense, because the alternative seemed bleak. But, uh, the, um, at least in the short run, but, uh, the, um, um, but I willed to do it, but I really didn't desire it, really, in terms of my whole affections for life. You understand. And sometimes they go together. Sometimes we have a great desire and that desire spurns on a plan to do something, to accomplish something. That's the sense here. I think the translators translated primarily desire and want to reflect the heart of Jesus because he's in the midst of his praying. Certainly he's planned out. Certainly he knows how he's going to get from point A to point B. Certainly how he, he knows and it's planned out how he's going to get those who believe in him, those the Father had given him, those who have eternal life. He knows how he's going to get them into his presence one day and reveal his glory. He knows all of that. It's all planned out. It is going to happen. We know it because this is Jesus and he's praying this. His father will hear this and of course say yes. In fact, you get the sense that his father is saying yes, this is exactly what we agreed to when you left. In fact, this is exactly what we agreed to before the foundations of the world when this plan was put into place. This is exactly it, that, this, that you would save people from their sins, your people, my people from their sins, and then a day would come when they would be in our, your presence and you would reveal your glory. And, and so, yes, that's all true, but, but what I want to think about today is for us to realize that this is the heart of Jesus. He wants to do this. Now, you may say, well, sure, we know that, but do we really? Do we know Jesus like that? Do we know him as this one who delights to be merciful? Who delights to save us? 
You see, sometimes we, we, we wonder, at least with other people, at least I do, so this is a personal confession. And I know I struggle with this, but I'm getting over it, so don't write me letters about it. Uh, you know, I, I do struggle, but Karen knows this, I do struggle wondering, do people really want me in their lives? I'm okay with that. This isn't, I'm not as neurotic as that sounds. But this is, this is who I am. I, I can get over that. But, but, but I do. I just think about that. You know, why do they really want me here? Do they really want me here? They probably just want Karen here. I would. You know? Or my kids or somebody else. Or sometimes people just want me to show up because of the pastor or some denominational things I'm at. I'm going, I really don't need to be here. I'm just, you know, poof. So I wonder about that. And, and sometimes people grow up in families thinking about that because you never got the sense right or wrong, you may have to work back through this because you may be wrong about it, you may be right about it. I mean, I got the sense that maybe my mom, my dad really didn't accept me, love me, want me here. Necessarily. Some people struggle with that and go through that. That's real. And that affects then, perhaps, even when we think about the desire of God for us, Jesus, to have us in his, in his presence. We wonder about that. Some struggle more than others, but to think that through I've heard that people have relatives that when the relatives show up in the driveway that you turn on all the lights and lock the doors and think maybe they won't know we're home. Uh, so maybe it happens in the lives of the people. But to get this sense, do we really get it? Do we really know that there's this part of God that delights in showing us mercy? Just a couple of very familiar passages. For instance, uh, one of the most familiar um, Psalm 23, and we recite and we know the shepherd psalm, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That little word, surely, could also be translated only. That if someone who is a sheep of the shepherd, someone who's a follower of Christ, someone who's been given eternal life, the point that this psalm is making is that what's following us, what's pursuing us, is goodness and mercy. Nothing else. Not judgment. Goodness and mercy. And, and it's following me, the psalmist writes. And that little word for follow is, a, is, is really more than just sort of, sort of taking, you know, being two steps behind and trying to catch up kind of thing. Following. It's a pursuing. It's a pursuit. It's a, it's, it's a desire to get there and, to, and to, 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 to really give this goodness and mercy. It's a word used of a hunter seeking his prey as he's following after why he's pursuing. Why? Because he wants to capture it, he wants to kill it or whatever. But in this case, it's this sense of pursuit of God after us to give us goodness and mercy. The question is, do we know God like that? How do we think of Him? Do we know Him really like that? Psalm 35 and verse uh, 27 uh, puts it like this. This is a psalm of, of uh, David and it's one of David's bad decades, and uh, everybody's after him, and, and, and everybody's you know wanting to kill him and speaking ill of him, and all those kinds of things that, that David seems to go through. Uh, and at the very end, as he's reflecting upon the, the, his life, verse 27, he says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. David says, I hope people are able to look at my life, even though it's difficult, even though people are chasing me and all of that. And I hope what they're able to see in the midst of that is that God has cared for me. And I hope that they are able to see that God delights 
in my welfare. It may not look at, look like it at any one moment in time, but David said, in all of this time, with all these people after me, what I really hope they're able to see is that God cares for me, that God delights in looking after my welfare. The, the passage I read for our call to worship from one, Psalm 147, verse 10, speaking of God, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man. That is, God is not all that impressed with us. When God's looking for strength, He doesn't say, what well, I need is a couple of good men. I really help me. You're a really stout horse. That's what I need, a good horse. He's God, right? Here's what the Lord delights in. Verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. In other words, those who come to Him, those who revere Him, those who know who He is and sit in awe of Him and say, you're God and I'm not. And I bow my knee to you in joy because I know who you are. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love, those who say, I don't have any hope at all other than God loves me and will continue to love me. He's the one in whom I hope nothing else, not the economy, not the politics of the day, uh, not even my family, but I hope in Him. The prophet Jeremiah speaks uh, for God. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah uh, and from this we see the very heart of God. Again, Jeremiah prophesying judgment, but now he's prophesying restoration um, to ancient Israel. Verse 37, Behold, uh, this is uh, Jeremiah 32, uh, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And here's what I'm after. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Now, when we use that expression, all my heart and soul, God is using it because he's saying, I'm really not like you, I'm spirit, so, but bear with me here. I'm using some words that you'll understand. When we do something with all of our heart and soul, what does that mean? It means we put everything into it. It means that this is what we desire most of all. We're doing it with all of our hearts and all of our soul. And so God says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to put my fear within you for your own good. I'm going to bless your children and bless you. Why? Because I love you and because this is my desire. This is what I rejoice in. And so he says, I rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. We read together um, a passage out of Zephaniah. It's familiar to us, that passage out of Zephaniah, because we, we sing that. Uh, but uh, as I'm giving evidence, Zephaniah is not the easiest book in the Old Testament to find. There it is. All right. That would be embarrassing to think it's not in my Bible. Um, being the prideful person I am, that's what I would have said. Not that I can't find it, but this is not here. Uh, I don't know. Between services, it just got ripped out, and uh, which would be problematic in itself. But Zephaniah is, is, is again, a prophet. He's prophesying uh, the doom. But then at the end, he begins, because of the heart of God, speaking of restoration. And it's, it's that, that very part uh, in verse 17 
which, which lays out, uh, verse 16, begins to lay out um, the heart of God. The Lord, or on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Most of us as parents know that there were times when we sang to our kids. We used it before they could talk and tell us not to sing anymore. But when they were little, we sang to them. Why? Well, in part because it could comfort them. It did comfort them. But not only that, it was a sense of joy, a sense of rejoicing. We sing because we're happy. We sing because we're joyful. And so we sing over our children because we're glad they belong to us. We're glad that they are ours. And there's this sense, again, of God who rejoices over us. And and the question that I have to keep asking myself is, if I got in this relationship with God, that it, it ceases to be that kind of personal anymore. It ceases to be that way where I forget that he really delights in me. He really likes me. He's really happy that I'm around. I'm not an intrusion into his life. And he delights, he rejoices in being merciful to me and to us. Do we know him like that? Luke chapter 15, uh, Luke records for us these very well-known parables of Jesus. Uh, They're all about something being lost, something being found, and then a rejoicing that goes on. Jesus' point is that that's how God is, that we being lost when found is a great joy to God. And he desires for us, therefore, to come to him. When Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest, he means it. He doesn't mean, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and you'll be a burden to me. No. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll lift your burdens. And I'll delight in doing that. So come. Don't be afraid to come. Come to me, he says. And we see, again, the heart of God in this Luke 15. Let me just read some of this and talk a bit about it. Begins, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, so you get the sense. You get the grumbling Pharisees. And so Jesus is really ultimately directing his remarks to them. And in a sense, he's saying, God is not like you. He's saying that, that, that God isn't one who grumbles over receiving sinners and being in their midst the way you do. Because God would make a provision for sinners. It isn't that he's happy about our sin. It's just that his love is such that he makes provision for it by way of Jesus. So first one, you know this. So we told him this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found the sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine Pharisees. He doesn't really say that, but he says over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the Pharisees needed to repent. They just didn't know they needed to repent. They just thought everything was fine because they were good enough. And he says, now let me tell you about God. God delights in mercy. God delights in giving mercy. God delights in those who fear him. God delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. But if your hope is in your own righteousness, then there's no place with you in God. 
God is filled with joy, you see, when the likes of us come to Him. Next one, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing. But now this next one. You know what's coming, probably, if you're a Bible reader, if you know anything about the parables of Jesus. You know the next one that's coming. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Now, there's some differences here in this parable as compared to the other two. There's some things left out in this one. There's some, some similarities, but some things left out. Now, this is different, too, because it's about a lost person as opposed to a coin or a sheep. I suppose there's a qualitative difference. There's something else going on here. But, but still, there's something left out here that I think is important. Let me read through this, make some comments and we'll make this comparison. And what I'm after here is something of the heart of God. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between the two sons, one older, one younger. In those days, it's not mentioned here, but probably what happened is the younger son got a third, the older son two-thirds. That's sort of how it was split up. Firstborn got twice as much as everybody else. And so it's probably split up in that particular way. But, but it's important to see the insult that the younger son and even the elder son, who probably went along with this, um, gave to the father. And in, in essence, they were saying to their father, we'd rather you be dead. We don't really want to be around you, but we want your stuff. And so could you give us our inheritance now? And so get that insult. Verse 13, not that many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sends him into his fields to feed pigs. By the way, that would be horrendously offensive to all these uh, Israelites there uh, to be talking about pigs. But anyway, that's a bit of a side. And he, was go- and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So you see the problem that's arisen. Verse 17. But then he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. That would be highly unusual in that culture for a father to run. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, in what I read, there's a huge difference between this parable and the others. Not only that this deals with human beings and those with sheep and coins, There's something very different here. I'll tell you what that is in a minute if you haven't caught it. Verse 25. 
it's okay, I didn't catch it either. I read a book on my plane ride down uh, to Orlando earlier this week by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. Interesting title. But you can't buy it until the end of the month. It was an advanced copy that I got through my local bookstore owner. Uh, so I didn't see it until it was pointed out. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, and he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look. Now, by the way, that's a huge insult. When he just looks at his father and says, Look. Sort of, Look, you. Perhaps, Look, you idiot kind of expression. Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, Son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now the kicker obviously in this parable is to the Pharisees because they're the elder brothers in the whole story. I mean it really could be called the parable of the elder brother because that's really the point it seems that Jesus is telling and he's talking to Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders and they wouldn't take in anybody other than people who are righteous like themselves. The elder brother wouldn't take in his younger brother because his younger brother wasn't righteous like he, he was and Jesus is saying you're missing the whole point about God who delights in mercy. But there's something very different about this parable than the other ones. Two things, really. One is that not everybody rejoices here. The elder brother doesn't rejoice in the other parables. There was rejoicing going on with everybody, all the friends. Everybody got together to, re to rejoice. But now not the elder brother. He's not so happy about this. And number two, nobody went after the lost son. When the sheep was lost, the shepherd went after the lost sheep. When the coin was lost, the woman went after the lost coin. But when the son left, nobody went after the son. And there have been great speculation about this over the years, over the centuries, about why it is that there isn't any one going after the son. Could it be something in the context of free will? But that seems to be stretching this parable tremendously to, to read anything like that into it, that the father couldn't go after the son because that would be a violation of his free will yet. We know that God comes after us and we hope he violates everything in us to save us if that's what needs to happen. But we wonder, why did the father not go after the son? It would have been very culturally inappropriate for the father to go after the son. He was, he was older, he'd been disgraced, but he didn't go after the son. But, but the real question and perhaps the ironic twist here, and here's what Tim Keller helps us to see, I think, and that is that here we have an elder brother who would not go after his wayward younger brother. And at the same time, we have our elder brother, Jesus, standing, telling this story. Who's come after us to seek and to save that which is lost. See, the elder brother in the story wouldn't go after his younger brother for a couple of reasons. Number one, he didn't love his younger brother. 
the last thing in the world he wanted his younger brother back because you see if his younger brother came back it would be costly to him if his younger brother came back he would be the one to incur the cost because he had gotten his inheritance he now had it all everything that was his father's was now his as the father says in the parable everything that I have is yours why? because he had given it to him he had willed it to him he had received his inheritance it had already been split up he had already gotten it now if the, his younger brother comes back and folds into the family in some way shape or form it will be costly to the elder brother. In fact, if his dad would happen to reinstate him in the family, then what would come of the inheritance? Would he get another share? Perhaps so. He didn't want to share that with his younger brother. Didn't love him in that sense. Wasn't willing to pay that kind of cost. And secondly, this, that the elder brother wasn't all that thrilled with his dad. You could get this sense that he had a bitterness towards his father. He didn't see the glory of his father. He wouldn't have gone to his younger brother and said, what are you doing? Don't you know how great it is to live in dad's house? Don't you know how great it is to live in the glory of our father? He's wise and he's powerful. He protects us. He provides for us. Why in the world do you want to leave? Come back. But the older brother wouldn't do that because he was bitter against his own father because in his mind he had worked and worked and worked and everything he had was his by way of merit and he deserved it and therefore... He didn't see the graciousness, the glory, the love of his father. But Jesus is an entirely different elder brother. He's he's like us. In every way, the scripture says, he comes to be the firstborn of many brothers. He comes so that other brothers and sisters would follow after him, of course. And so there he stands telling the story and, and, and he leaves out anybody, even the elder brother going after the younger son. But there he is, the elder brother who's come after us. Why has he come after us? Because first, he knows the glory of his father. He knows that when human beings turned away from God, they lost the very presence of God in that sense and, the, and living in the very glory and the radiance of God. And Jesus says, I'll go get them. I'll bring them back. I'll, I'll do this for your honor, Father, that they may see your glory and rejoice in it. And I'll go because I love them. Because I delight in showing mercy. And I'll rejoice when... They come home. Jesus comes. And, and of course, not to stretch this too far, but of course he's willing to pay whatever cost is necessary to bring us home, to incur that cost. And he does in, in the context of his own life. He comes in the incarnation. He suffers. and He's acquainted with grief. And he comes and he dies on a cross that we might indeed have life. When we're measuring the extent of love, a few things come to mind. Number one, the cost. It seems the greater the cost, other things equal, the greater the love. How much was sacrificed here? The greater the sacrifice, other things equal, the greater the love. And you also get a sense that the less the merit, other things equal, the one being loved, the greater the love. The more unworthy, if you will, the object of one's affections it appears the greater the love that's shown because it's completely unmerited, undeserved, ill-deserved. That all applies to us. Obviously, the Scripture says about Jesus, really about God the Father, 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, he died for us, completely unmerited, unworthy of his love. Christ died for a supreme cost. But then there's a third thing, a third thing that we often miss, but we mustn't, and that is there's always, in the midst of love, joy. The greater the joy in making the sacrifice, the greater the joy in making the sacrifice for the undeserving the greater the love. And what does the scripture say about our Lord Jesus? It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning the shame. That's what I want us to, to, to get. Do we get that? That he delighted to give himself that we might have life. And when you get that, what's that do? What's that really move us to do? Number one, uh, I think it moves us to pray because we realize that we really can't go to him. We're not in an imposition that he really does want to hear from us and that he does indeed delight in giving mercy and doing good for us. That as the author to the Hebrews says, that his throne is in fact a throne of grace. That we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but sympathizes, empathizes, sympathizes with us in every way. Thus we can turn to him, go to him, and receive mercy and help in every single time of need. And it's not a bother. He delights to hear from us. And in the confession of our sin. You see, one of the flaws even of the younger brother was that he thought he could pay his dad back. When he came back from his wayward living, when he came to his senses, what did he do? Excuse me. He came back to his, his dad and he said... I could be like one of your hired servants. What was he saying? He was saying, well, if you apprentice me to one of your hired men, I will be able to learn a skill. And in learning the skill, I won't live in the house. I'll live in the city, but I'll be able to pay you back. Father would have none of it. And you see, the danger for us in the context of our Christian lives is when we sin, no matter what we know about grace and forgiveness of all that, when we sin, a thought comes into our mind that says, okay, now I need to make that right. And after I make it right, I can go to God and I can say, I know I sinned, but I did this, so surely that is better. And God will have none of it. There is no paying him back. There is no paying him forward. There is no paying him. He gives forgiveness. We can be like the elder brother as well. Great danger there is we can think, well, I've generally been good enough, so therefore I have a good case of general forgiveness that pretty much everything must be covered because I'm pretty much okay. Father will have none of that either. He delights in those who fear him, who hope in his steadfast love. And so you see, when we really understand Jesus in this way, that he delights in showing mercy, that he rejoices in doing that which is good for us and in our welfare, then even as we've sinned, we can go to him. And we will go to him and trust him. Gives us a deep sense of assurance. If he so enjoys being merciful, here we are, a needy people waiting for his mercy, ready for his mercy. And thus we can be assured that all of his promises are true. He won't turn around on us because even of our sin. Because he's a God who delights in us and giving mercy to us as well.
and it will give us strength to endure, knowing that a day will come and we'll be with him in his very presence. We needn't fear death, but we can keep on. And finally, this too, that it gives us a great desire to see his glory. The scripture says in 1 John in chapter 3, in verse 2, and three, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we have, what we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Himself, I'm sorry, and everyone who thus hopes uh, in Him, in Jesus, purifies himself as He is pure. And thus, you see, if our great desire is to be with Jesus, to see Him, to see His glory, then we'll begin now this process of sanctification so that we can see his glory even more. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is our delight. My question for all of us, for me, what I will grapple with this week, is do I know Jesus that way? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I desire to know you that way. I desire to, to know that you delight in having us in your very presence. You desire that we would be with you and see your glory. I pray that would be our desire as well. Enable us to trust you, to know you like that. But Father, I know that uh, there are times of difficulty. I know that we're experiencing difficulty in our congregation, in the world in various ways, by way of health, by way of relationships, by way of the economy, by way of war. And I pray, God, that you would be with us. That we would see you still in the midst of all the trouble as the one who takes pleasure in providing for the welfare of your people. So I pray that we would find our hope there. Father, for those who minister in the name of Christ in various cultures that can be difficult, I pray for them. For Mike and Amy Wheatridge, Father, I pray for them. Janus Quidon in Croatia, I pray for them. Father, that you would be with these very ones and that you would sing over them and that they would know uh, your heart for them and that they would therefore readily Turn to you. Father, I pray that for all of us. That we would readily, quickly turn to you in every time of need, knowing that you're there, that you will receive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction.